volume one chapters twenty two and twenty three of a strange world by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain twenty two and i shall be alone until i die the image of that white-robed figure pallid face and ebon hair haunted maurice clissel throughout the day though his day was very pleasant and martin trevenard the most cheerful of companions they halted at various villages explored old parish churches where tarnished and blackened brasses told of mitred abbots and lords of the soil otherwise unrecorded and forgotten clissold was learned in church architecture and not a gargoyle escaped his keen eye martin was pleased to exhibit the interesting features of his native land and listened deferentially to maurice's disquisitions on brasses fonts and piscine they stopped at a wayside inn lunched heartily on bread and cheese and cider and were altogether as companionable as young men can well be martin had read about half a dozen books since he left halstone grammar school but those were of the highest character and he had them in his heart of hearts shakespeare pope and byron were his poets fielding goldsmith and scott his only romances from shakespeare and scott he had learned history from fielding and goldsmith he had caught the flavour of wit and humour that are dead as the latin classics thus clissold found not without a touch of surprise that the farmer's son was no unworthy companion for a man who had made literature his profession on their homeward round they pulled up at penwyn church which stood high and dry on the green hillside midway between the village and the manor and looked like a church that had fallen from the sky so completely was it out of everybody's way tradition insisted that in the middle ages there had been a village close to the church but no trace of that vanished settlement remained there stood the temple square towered with crocketed finials at the four angles of the tower there lay its ancient slumberous graveyard on the slope of the hill the dead forever basking in the southern sun which in this midsummer weather seemed to have power enough to warm them back to life again here maurice saw the resting-place of the penwins almost as old as the church itself a vault so large that these lords of the soil seemed to have a whole crypt to themselves very mouldy and cold and dark was this last abode of the squires and their race here he saw also the parish registers which contained a concise synopsis of the history of the penwins since the middle ages how they had been christened married and buried james ought to have been brought down here said maurice when they were in the churchyard where the deep soft grass was full of field-flowers and the air of sweet homely odours not in that mouldy old crypt with his ancestral dust but here amongst this thymy grass face to face with the sun and the sea and with the skylark singing above his grave it would have been ever so much better than kensal green it was eight o'clock when they drove down into the valley where the old white house and its numerous barns and outbuildings looked like a village nestling in that grassy hollow the scene looked just the same as last night when maurice clissold approached it for the first time the same stillness upon all things the same low yellow light in the western sky the same red glow from the hall fire the same changeless figure of the old grandmother in her high-backed leather-covered armchair half hidden in the shadow of the corner where she sat it wanted an hour to supper and mr trevenard was struggling with some accounts at a table by one of the windows where he had the last of the dying daylight hope you've had a pleasant day sir he said without looking up from his papers or relaxing the frown with which he contemplated a long column of figures take a pull of that cider after your drive it's only just drawn you might give me a hand with these accounts martin i never was a dab at figures 
all right father we'll soon tot him up martin sat down by his father and took the pen out of his hand maurice refreshed himself with a draught of cider and then went on to the porch i should like to take a look round the place between this and supper-time if you don't mind mr trevenart he said look where you please sir you're free and welcome you'll hear the supper-bell at nine o'clock maurice lighted a cigar as he left the porch and prepared for a contemplative dreamy stroll one calm hour of solitude before the day was done he avoided the stackyard and did not honour the various families of black and white picklings in divers stages of infancy and adolescence with his attention he made a circuit of the pond and went round to the back of the homestead where lay that neglected garden which he had seen from the distance at this midsummer time it was a wilderness of verdure and flowers ran wild great lavender bushes forests of unpruned roses tall white lilies syringa carnations weeds and blossoms growing as they would moss-grown paths a broken sundial fallen across a bed of heart's ease and mignonette beyond the flower-garden there was a still deeper wilderness of hazel quinces and alders which drew their chief sustenance from a shallow pool whose dark shining surface was almost hidden by the spreading branches the grey old trunks the thick screen of leaves through which the light came dimly even at noon a delightful spot for a meditative poet maurice was charmed with garden and wilderness and lighted a second cigar on the strength of his discovery of the alder and quince grove it was not easy walking here by reason of the undergrowth of st john's wort fern and briar which made a dense jungle but after a little exploration mr clissold came upon a narrow footpath evidently well trodden which wound in and out among the old grey trunks and under the hazel boughs till it brought him to the brink of the water the pool was wider than he had thought but so covered with water-lilies that the dark water only showed in patches through that thick carpet of shining leaves just such a pool as a stranger might easily walk into unawares maurice pulled up in time and seated himself on the gnarled trunk of an alder whose roots straggled deep down into the water among sedges and innocent harmless cresses here he slowly pulled at his cigar abandoning himself to such thoughts as a poet has in such a scene and such an hour the last yellow gleam of the sun shone faintly behind the low thick trees and through the one break in the wood the distant sea-line showed darkly grey just where ocean merged into sky i should write better verses if i lived here for a year thought maurice musing upon a certain volume which he meant to give the world by and by he hardly knew whether there would be much in it worthy the world's acceptance it was only the outpouring of a strong fresh soul a soul that had known its share of human sorrow and done a brave man's battle with care he was deep in a reverie that had led him very far away from borsolend when he heard a rustling of the branches near him and turned quickly round expecting to see martin trevenard the face that looked at him from between the parted hazel boughs startled him almost as much as that white-robed figure last night it was the face he had seen in the moonlight and which he saw now with peculiar distinctness in the clear grey light a wan white face with large dark eyes a face which once must have been most beautiful the dark eyes the delicate features were still beautiful but the complexion was almost ghastly in its pallor and the eyes were unnaturally bright this was muriel trevenard maurice thought she would have been frightened at sight of him and would have hurried away but to his surprise she came a little nearer him cautiously stealthily even those restless eyes glancing right and left as she approached 
there was a curious intensity in her gaze when her eyes fixed themselves at last upon his face peering at him scrutinizing him with something of her mother's keen look one hand was lifted to her head to push back the wild mass of tangled hair and the loose sleeve of her gown fell back from the white-waisted arm face and body seemed alike wasted by the mind's consuming fire you can tell me perhaps she said in a quick eager voice others won't they're too unkind for they must know you can tell me i'm sure when will he come back my poor soul i would gladly tell you if i knew but i don't even know whom you are talking of oh yes you do mother knows she told you i dare say i'm not going to tell his name i promise to keep that secret whatever it cost me to be silent and i'm not going to break my promise when is he coming back she paused looking at him with beseeching expectant eyes as if she waited breathless for his answer is he ever coming back she waited again indeed miss trevenard i know nothing about it how dare you call me miss trevenard that's not my name muriel then that's better he called me muriel her chin dropped on her breast and she stood for a few moments looking down at the water all her face softened by some sweet sad thought he called me muriel she repeated muriel muriel i can hear his voice now hear it yes as plainly as i can see him when i close my eyes again a pause and then an eager question how can he be dead when he is so near me how can he be dead when i hear him and see him and can even feel the touch of his hand upon my head his lips upon my lips he awakes me from my sleep sometimes with a kiss but when i open my eyes he is gone was he always a spirit she seemed unconscious of maurice's presence as she moved a few paces further along the water's edge always looking downward in self-communion my love how can they say that you are dead when i am waiting for you so patiently and will wait for you to the end wait till you come to take me away with you it was to be little more than a year you told me oh god what a long year the anguish in that last ejaculation pierced the listener's heart as it had been pierced by her wild cry of sorrow last night he followed her along the brink of the pool put his arm round her shrunken form protectingly and tried to comfort her as best he might knowing so little of her grief muriel he said gently and her name so spoken seemed to have a softening influence upon her i am almost a stranger to this place and to you but i would gladly be your friend if i could tell me if there is anything i can do to comfort you are you happy in your home with your poor old grandmother or would you rather be somewhere else he wanted to find out if she was suffering from any sense of ill usage if she felt herself a prisoner and an alien in her father's house no she said resolutely i must stay here he will come and fetch me but you speak sometimes as if you knew him to be dead is it not foolish vain to hope for that which cannot happen he is not dead people have told me so on purpose to break my heart i think haven't i told you that i see him very often then why are you so unhappy because he will not stay with me because he does not come to fetch me away as he promised in a little more than a year because he comes and goes like a spirit perhaps they are right and he is really dead 
would it not be better to make up your mind to that and to leave off watching for him and roaming about the house at night who told you that she asked quickly never mind who told me you see i know how foolish you are wouldn't it be wiser to try and go back to the common business of life to bind up all that loose hair neatly like a lady and try to be a comfort to your father and mother at that last word an angry cry broke from the pale lips mother echoed muriel i have no mother that woman yonder pointing towards the house is my worst enemy mother my mother with a bitter laugh ask her what she has done with my child that question came upon maurice clissold like a revelation here was a sadder story than he had dreamt of a story which no word of martin's had hinted at a story of shame as well as of sorrow perchance he remained silent troubled and perplexed by this new turn of affairs his office of consoler his attempt to smooth the tangled threads of a disordered brain came to an end all at once the woman turned from him impatiently muttering to herself as she went away he followed her along the sinuous footpath and across the garden and watched her as she entered by a low half-glass door at the back of the house he passed this door afterwards and stole a glance through the glass into a large low room where there was a fire burning a room which he divined to be the grandmother's chamber an old-fashioned tent bedstead with red and white chintz curtains occupied one side of the room a ponderous old armchair stood near the fireplace a huge wooden chest made at once a seat and a receptacle for all kinds of household stores a corner cupboard filled with crockery ware and a small round table near the hearth completed the catalogue of furniture here on the hearth rug sat muriel her wild hair falling about her face her hands clasped upon her knees her eyes bent gloomily upon the burning log the supper-bell rang from the porch on the other side of the homestead while maurice was watching that melancholy figure by the hearth she has taken away my appetite for supper he said to himself and has almost set me against borsal end that last speech of muriel trevenard's troubled him ask her what she has done with my child it set him thinking of dark stories of family pride and hidden crime it took the flavour of enjoyment out of this rustic home and imparted a taint of mystery and suspicion which poisoned the atmosphere twenty three surely most bitter of all sweet things thou art maurice clissold keenly scrutinized bridget trevenard's face as they sat at supper that evening muriel's look of horror at the mention of her mother's name had inspired unpleasant doubts upon the subject of his hostess's character he remembered how elspeth had told him that mrs trevenard was known as a hard woman and he told himself that cruelty or even crime might be consistent with that hard nature which had won for the farmer's wife the reputation of a stern and exacting mistress his closer examination of that face showed him no indication of lurking evil that square unwrinkled brow those dark brown eyes with their keen straight outlook denoted at least an honest nature the firm lips the square jaw gave severity to the countenance a resolute woman a woman not to be turned from her purpose thought maurice but a woman whom he could hardly imagine capable of crime and then why give credence to the rambling assertions of lunacy it is the nature of madness to accuse the sane maurice tried to put the thought of muriel's wild talk out of his mind yet that awful question what has she done with my child haunted him he felt less desire to prolong his stay at borsal the restful tranquillity of the place seemed to have departed 
muriel's fevered mind had its influence upon the atmosphere he could not forget that she was near wakeful unhappy waiting for the lover who was never to return to her he took good care to lock his door that night and his slumbers were undisturbed the next morning was devoted to a long ramble with martin they walked to a distant hillside where there were some druidic remains well worth inspection came back to the farm in time for the substantial early dinner had a look at the haymakers dining plenteously in a great stone kitchen and then retired to a field where the hay was cocked to lie basking in the sun with their faces seaward dreaming away the summer afternoon here maurice told martin the story of james penwin's death and the brief love story which had come to so pitiful an ending poor child he said musingly recalling his last interview with justina i verily believe she loved him truly and honestly and would have made him a good wife i never saw a nobler countenance than that player girl's i'm sorry i thrust myself between them with so much as one hard word was no one ever suspected of the murder asked martin yes replied maurice without taking his cigar from his lips i was for a little while this was rather startling martin trevenard stared at his new acquaintance with a curious look for a moment or so before he recovered himself you were yes didn't you know my name was in the papers but i believe they did me the favour to spell it wrong perhaps i ought to have mentioned the fact when i was asking mrs trevenard to take me in yes i his bosom friend was the only person they could pitch upon when they wanted to find the assassin yes i have been in ebersham jail under suspicion as a murderer the charge broke down at the inquest and i came off with flying colours i believe still there the fact remains the spinnersbury detectives put the crime down to me it would need pretty strong proof to make me suspect you said martin heartily i was a good many miles away from the spot when that cursed deed was done but it did not suit me to advertise my exact whereabouts to the world why not because to have told the truth would have been to compromise a woman the only one i ever loved as a man loves one chosen woman out of all the world martin threw away his unfinished cigar turned himself about upon the haycock which he had chosen for his couch and settled himself to hear something interesting with a bright eager look in his dark eyes tell me all about it he said bah weak sentimentality muttered maurice i should only bore you no you wouldn't i should like to hear it well naming no names and summing up the matter briefly there will be no harm done it is the story of a dead and buried folly that's all a hackneyed commonplace story enough he sighed as if the recollection hurt him a little dead as this old foolishness might be sighed and looked seaward dreamily as if he were looking back into the past you must know that when i was a year or two younger and life was fresher to me i went a good deal into what people call society didn't set my face against new acquaintances dinner parties dances and so forth as i do now i've a fair income for a bachelor belong to a good family and can hold my own position well in a crowd now amongst the houses i visited in those days there were only two or three where i went from sheer honest regard for the people i visited among these was the house of a certain fashionable physician not a hundred miles from cavendish square he was a widower with three daughters the two elder thorough women of the world and most delightful girls to know we were chums from the outset 
they drove me about in their barouche made me useful as an escort at flower shows a perambulatory catalogue at picture galleries and we all three comprehended perfectly that i was not to dream of marrying either of them dangerous i should think suggested martin safe as the tarpeian rock my feelings for the dear girls were of a purely fraternal character from the first i would as soon have bought the winner of the last derby for a park hack as had one of these two for my wife i went shopping with them occasionally twiddled my thumbs at peter robinson's while they turned over silks and i knew the amount of millinery required for their sustenance no martin there was no peril here unluckily there was the third daughter a tender slip of a girl hardly out of the schoolroom a child who had her gowns meted out to her by her sisters and wore perpetual white muslin for evening dress and brown holland for morning good heavens i can see her this moment standing by the piano in her holland frock with a blue ribbon twisted through her loose brown hair and those divine hazel eyes looking at me pleadingly as who should say be gentle to me you see what a child i am no worldliness here no ambition here no avid desire of millinery no set purpose of making a great marriage i said to myself only innocence and trustfulness and childlike meekness so i fell over head and ears in love with my friend's third daughter very natural said martin i don't see why it shouldn't have ended pleasantly i didn't act like a sneak make love to the girl behind her sister's backs and bide my time for winning her i went to the doctor at once told him what had happened ventured to add that i thought my darling liked me and asked his permission to offer her my hand he hummed and hawed said there was no one he would like better for a son-in-law but his youngest child was really not out of the nursery any question of an engagement was absurd it seemed only yesterday that he had bought her a shetland pony however he gave me to understand in a general way that i was free to come and go so our intimacy knew no abatement i still did the walking-stick business at flower shows and the catalogue business at exhibitions and made myself generally useful seeing a good deal of my fair blossom-like maiden in the meanwhile we met very often sat together of an evening unnoticed when the room was full and before long we knew that we loved each other and we had sworn that for us two there should be no love but this papa might say what he liked about youth and foolishness and shetland ponies we were not impatient we would wait for ever so many years if necessary but in good time we two should be one sweet and tender promises breathed in the twilight from lips too lovely to betray dove-like eyes lifted shyly to mine soft little hand resting so fondly within my arm i laugh when i think of you and how it all ended he did laugh bitterly savagely almost as he flung the stump of his cigar across the haycocks towards the sea martin waited in respectful silence awed by this little gust of passion well we were pledged to each other and happy this went on for a year nobody took any notice of us any more than if we had been children playing at lovers we lived in a foolish paradise of our own at least i did heaven only knows what her thoughts may have been one day when i had been away from town for a week or so i called in cavendish square saw the two elder girls and heard that my betrothed had gone for a long visit to some friends in yorkshire at a place called tilney longford a fine old country seat papa had thought her looking pale and thin and had sent her off at a day's notice she might be away two or three months lady longford was the kindest of women and was always asking them to stay at her place 
we can't go of course they said with our large circle but that child has no ties and can stay as long as they like to keep her this was hard upon me the privilege of correspondence was denied us for i could not write my darling a clandestine letter i went to the doctor a second time and told him that i had waited a year that i was so much deeper in love by every day of that blessed year and urged him to receive me as his daughter's suitor he treated the question rather more seriously than before repeated his assurance that i was the very man he would have liked for a son-in-law but added that he did not consider my income sufficiently large or my profession sufficiently lucrative to allow of his entrusting his daughter's happiness to my care my girls have been expensively brought up he said you have no notion what they cost me i have been too busy to teach them prudence it has been easier for me to earn money for them to waste than to find leisure to check their extravagance we live in too fast an age for the vulgar virtues i argued the point but vainly and told him that whatever decision he might arrive at his youngest daughter and i had made up our minds to be true to each other against all opposition i am sorry to hear that he replied for it will oblige me to ask you to discontinue your visits here when my little girl comes back a discourtesy which goes very much against the grain i left him in a white heat went straight off to james penwin and arranged a tour which we had been talking about ever so long we were to walk through the north of england and i was to coach poor jim for his last struggle at oxford london was hateful to me now that my darling had left it and james penwin's company the only society i cared for he paused abandoned himself to the memory of that vanished past for a little and then went on more hurriedly it was at ebersham the morning before james penwin's murder that i received the first and last letter i was ever to get from my love she had addressed it at my london lodgings and it had been travelling about after me for the last three weeks her first letter i opened it with such a thrill of joy thinking how divine it was of her to be so daring as to write to me such a broken-hearted letter telling me how a certain rich landowner near lady longford's had proposed to her she broke into a parenthesis a page long to assure me she had never given him the faintest encouragement and how everybody persuaded her to accept him and how her father himself had come down to tilney to lecture her into subjection but it is all useless she said i will marry no one but my own dear love and oh please write and tell me what i am to do think what i must have felt trevenard when i considered that the letter was three weeks old and what persecution the poor little soul might have had to suffer in the interval what did you do can you ask me i started off without a quarter of an hour's delay and got to tilney as soon as the trains could carry me it was an abominable cross-country journey and there i was eating my heart out at dismal junctions for half the day it was past three o'clock when i ended my journey of something less than a hundred miles and found myself at a detestable little station called tilney road eight miles from tilney longford and no conveyance of any kind to be had i did the distance in something under two hours and entered the park gates just as the church clock hard by was striking five you went straight to the house no i didn't want to bring trouble upon that poor child so i prowled about the place like a poacher skirting the carriage roads luckily for me there was a right of way through the park so i was able to get pretty close to the house without attracting any one's particular attention i reflected that unless the doctor was still there not a likely thing for a man whose moments were gold there was no one to recognize me except my poor pet 
as i approached the gardens i heard laughter and fresh young voices and a general hubbub on the other side of the ha-ha which divided the park from a croquet lawn there was a gaily striped marquee on one side of the lawn a group of people taking tea under a gigantic cedar and a double set of croquet players disporting on the level sward my eyes were keen as a hawk's to distinguish my dearest in mauve muslin and an innocent little chip hat trimmed with daisies i observed even details you see busily engaged with her attendant cavalier and with no appearance of being bored by his society her fresh young laugh rang out silver clear that girlish laugh which had been one of her many charms to my mind that hardly sounds like a broken heart i said to myself he sighed and waited for a minute or so and then resumed in a harder voice well i was determined to form no judgment from appearances and i could not stand on the other side of the ha-ha taking observations from the covert of an old hawthorn forever so i went round to the back of the house waylaid a neat little abigail and asked her if she could find miss blank's maid for me i accompanied my question with a fee which ensured compliance and my pretty one's hand maiden appeared presently at the gate where i was waiting she remembered me among the intimates in cavendish square and consented to give her mistress the note i scribbled on a leaf of my pocket-book i hope i am not doing wrong sir she said but a young lady in my mistress's position cannot be too careful how she acts in what position i asked didn't you know sir my young lady is to be married the day after to-morrow that was a facer exclaimed martin it wasn't a pleasant thing to hear was it with that letter in my pocket vowing eternal fidelity the remembrance of that gay young laughter was hardly pleasant either the man i had seen on the croquet lawn was a good-looking fellow enough and then one man is so like another nowadays a woman may be constant to the type while she jilts the individual i had written to my betrothed asking her to meet me in the park at nine o'clock by a certain obelisk which i had observed on my way by nine she would be free i fancied in that half-hour of liberty which the women get after dinner while the men are talking politics and pretending to be very wise about claret did she come yes poor pretty shallow-hearted thing looking very sweet in the moonlight but tearful and trembling as if she thought i should beat her she sobbed out her wretched little story papa had been so kind her elder sisters had badgered her poor reginald the lover had been so good so generous so self-sacrificing and it had ended as such things generally do end i dare say she was to be married to him the day after to-morrow and oh maurice pray give me back my letter she said for i don't know what would become of me if it ever fell into reginald's hands how did you answer her with never a word i tore the lying letter into atoms and threw them away on the summer wind i made my love a respectful bow and left her never i trust in god to see her fair false face again End of volume one chapters twenty two and twenty three